The king sprung awake, drenched with sweat. He was worried about what the dream meant. It had a statue with various substances, and yet as he saw that beautiful statue of rock cut out without hands, grew up and was hurled at the statue, crushing it into fine powder, destroying it. What did the dream mean? He lay there restless, worried, and whether it was the very same hour of the night or early the next morning or after several nights of sleepless nights, he called upon his wise men to tell them what did it mean, and they couldn't do it. Until he found one young Jew who asked for a brief amount of time, and Daniel gathered with his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, and they prayed that God would have compassion on them. And God showed him what it meant. Daniel came into the presence of Nebuchadnezzar and he said, Nebuchadnezzar, the head of gold represented you and the great kingdom that God has given you. But your kingdom will not last forever. It will be given over to another people. The torso of silver is a second kingdom. And then the bronze is a third kingdom, an inferior kingdom. And finally, there was going to be a fourth kingdom. One that had the strength of iron and yet at the same time the brittleness of clay. But in the time of those kings, God has promised to establish His kingdom. His kingdom of heaven. It will not be given over to another people. It will last forever and it will dominate the earth. From the time of Daniel, the Jews looked for that kingdom. And they searched for its messianic king, the Son of Man. For over 500 years they waited. Nebuchadnezzar lived, he died, but Israel was still subject and in captivity. But then along came Cyrus, the Medo-Persian, and he conquered the Babylonians. He allowed the Jews to return back to their homeland, but this was not the promised kingdom. The Greeks conquered the Medo-Persians, and the Jews passed into their control. When Alexander died, the Israelites were passed back and forth among the divided Greek kingdoms, until finally the Maccabees came on the scene, and they brought fire into the Jews. They rebelled, and they won their political and their religious freedom. But even yet, the kingdom had not been established. A fourth empire came to being. Rome grew and swelled up and dominated the world. And in the days of Caesar Augustus, in that little backwater country of the Jews, a child was born. The angels heralded his birth to the shepherds. Wise men traveled from the east to honor and worship him. His youth was surrounded by prophecies. Could this be the king? Thirty years later, this child had grown. And his cousin went out in the wilderness and began to preach. And in Matthew chapter 3 and verse 2, it says that John the Baptist preached, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He baptized Jesus, and Jesus went forth preaching. According to Matthew chapter 4 and verse 17, Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. 
And according to Matthew 4 and verse 23, Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus' audiences were well acquainted with kingdoms, but they were well acquainted with all the wrong kind of kingdoms. They didn't understand what kind of kingdom God was going to establish. Here in the Sermon on the Mount that we've been studying now for the past month, Jesus summarized the gospel of the kingdom and explained to His audiences, to His followers, and to us exactly what this kingdom would be like. And what a shock it really is. We want to examine the kingdom of heaven as presented in the Sermon on the Mount. Learning what kind of kingdom it is. Before we do that, would you bow with me in prayer, please? Almighty Father in heaven, we are so thankful that you have established your kingdom. We know that it is growing, that it has lasted and has not been left to another people, but for 2,000 years has continued on this earth. And we pray that you would help us to be a part of your kingdom, spreading it, taking this gospel of the kingdom to those who are lost and weak, and helping them come into your family so that they can be forgiven, so that they can have the righteousness for which they hunger. Father, thank you so much for the forgiveness you've offered through your Son because we need it desperately. We have sinned so badly. And we're thankful for your grace and mercy and we pray that you would set us free from our sins, set us free from the tempter, set us free that we might pursue your righteousness and the good works that you've created for us to walk in. Father, we love you and we thank you for loving us. Through your Son we pray. Amen. As we learn about this kingdom of heaven, we begin in Matthew chapter 4, chapter 5 and verse 3. And we recognize that Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In chapter 5 and verse 10, Jesus said, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In Matthew 5 and verse 19, He said that those who do not teach and keep the commandments will be least in the kingdom of heaven. But those who keep the commands will be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 20, He said, Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. We must not get so caught up in trying to figure out what the kingdom of heaven is that we miss the primary point, And that is that it is the kingdom of heaven. It is not an earthly material kingdom. It is God's kingdom of heaven manifests here on the earth. In John chapter 18. John chapter 18 and verse 36, Jesus answered and said, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. The Jews had been looking for a kingdom that was just like the kingdoms they had endured, but one that they would dominate. We need to understand that while this kingdom is manifested in the earth, it is not of the earth. It is God's heavenly kingdom. It is the kingdom of heaven. Luke 17 
and verse 21. In Luke 17 and verse 21, Jesus commented on the kingdom. He said, Nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there it is. For behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Or as the New King James translates it, is within you. The kingdom of heaven is not concerned with territory and continents and how much land it controls. The kingdom of heaven is about the hearts of men. It's a spiritual kingdom. And as such, it is different. It's going to look different. It was not what the Jews were looking for, but it is what God was offering. The kingdom of heaven, because it is a spiritual kingdom, it will not go about conquering nations, but liberating people. It will not go about waging war, but will go about promoting peace. It will not dominate, but will offer mercy. It is the kingdom of heaven. Interestingly enough, just to throw you a little tidbit here, it's only the Gospel of Matthew that refers to it as kingdom of heaven. If you've got a computer Bible program, just put that phrase in, kingdom of heaven. You'll only find it in Matthew. And it's used over and over and over again. The kingdom of heaven here on earth. But as we consider this kingdom of heaven, we go back to Matthew 5 and verse 3, and we learn, surprisingly enough, that it is the kingdom of the poor in spirit. Acts chapter 22 and verse 28. Acts chapter 22 and verse 28 would shoot in the foot two concepts that the Jews would have had at this time. As we said, they were well acquainted with kingdoms, and they understood how you became a part of a kingdom. In Acts 22 and verse 27, the commander came to Paul and said, Are you a Roman? And Paul said, Yes. And the commander answered in verse 28, I acquired this citizenship with a large sum of money. And Paul said, But I was actually born a citizen. The Jews knew how you became a part of a kingdom. You were either born into it or you bought your way into it. But Jesus says that His kingdom is not by birth and it's not my money. His kingdom is the kingdom of the poor in spirit. It's the poor in spirit. It's not about what you are physically. It's not about what your birth was. It's a matter of spiritual conditions. It doesn't matter about your birth. What about your rebirth? John chapter 3. John chapter 3 and verse 3, Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Verse 5, Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. What do we learn here? It's not how we're born. It's whether or not we have been reborn. It doesn't matter whether we're a Jew or a Gentile. What a surprise this must have been. I have no doubt the Jews, when they first heard this, this didn't register for them. But even as early as Matthew 5 and verse 3, Jesus is pointing out that His kingdom is not just for the Jews, but for anyone, whether Jew or Gentile, who would be broken in spirit and come to God. Because His kingdom is the kingdom of the poor in spirit. But He also points out that it's the kingdom of the poor in spirit. The Roman Roman commander had bought his way into the kingdom. He had learned that, yeah, I can get into a kingdom if I just have enough money. But those who enter the kingdom of Christ are those who realize there's nothing I can pay. 
There's no amount of work that I can do. There's nothing that I can give to God that causes Him to owe me His kingdom. I can't work my way in. I can't talk my way in. I can't buy my way in. The kingdom goes to those who are broken. The kingdom goes to those who realize I can't afford it. The kingdom goes to those who come to God really realizing that the only way I can get into this kingdom is if I beg God for mercy. Because I have nothing to offer Him. And He has everything that I need. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is the kingdom of the poor in spirit. It is not the kingdom of the worthies. It is the kingdom of those who realize their unworthiness. It is the kingdom of those who make no pretense of spiritual greatness, but who are broken and mourn and gently submit to God, hungering and thirsting for His righteousness. It was a kingdom like no other. And Jesus was looking for citizens like no other kingdom had. The kingdom of heaven is the kingdom of the poor in spirit. But perhaps more shocking this was the fact that the kingdom of heaven is the kingdom of the harassed. In Matthew chapter 5 and verse 10, Jesus said, Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The kingdom of heaven is the kingdom of the harassed, the kingdom of the persecuted. The word for persecuted here means literally to be put to flight. What an odd kingdom. The promise in Daniel had said that it was going to grow and fill the entire world, but Jesus says that while it's doing that, it's going to constantly be persecuted and harassed, and yet it's still going to grow to fill the entire world. In fact, if we look at a passage like Acts chapter 8, one of the very amazing things that we recognize is the very persecution and harassment that promotes its growth. While the worldly are constantly trying to put the kingdom down, all that they do to try to stop it just simply spreads it. In Acts chapter 8 and verse 1, Saul was in hearty agreement with putting Stephen to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. Therefore, verse 4 says, those who had been scattered went about preaching the Word. It was the very harassment and persecution that Jesus had said would plague His kingdom that caused the spread of it. That caused it to get out of Jerusalem and go to the uttermost part of the earth. How amazing is that? What other king can accomplish that? As shocking as it is to us, we have to understand that we don't enter the kingdom of heaven because it provides us physical protection. 
Yes, it provides spiritual protection. It provides that spiritual home that we're looking for. And while the Father protects us in the battle against Satan, if we will remain faithful, that doesn't mean that our lives are going to be easy or without harm. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12 says, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. In Acts chapter 14 and verse 22, as Paul was going back through the churches that he and Barnabas had established and he was encouraging them, in Acts 14.22 it said he was strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith and saying, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. We enter that kingdom of heaven through tribulation. The kingdom of heaven is plagued with tribulation while it's here on the earth. And Jesus wants us to be prepared for that. Because when that harassment and that persecution takes place, that's when we might think that we're not in God's kingdom because surely God would protect us from this. But actually God is causing us to grow through this and protecting us spiritually so that we might have that great reward that is in heaven. And in Matthew 5 and verse 12, Jesus said that it's always been this way for God's people. But what a great reward we look to in 2 Peter chapter 1, excuse me, 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse 3. 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse 3, Peter said in 1 Peter 1 and verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. It is the kingdom of the harassed, but it is the kingdom of those who are going to be harassed all the way into heaven. And it's worth it. It's worth every minute of it. It's the kingdom of the poor in spirit. It's the kingdom of the harassed. It's the kingdom of the righteous. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 20, Jesus said, Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. The Pharisees were righteous. What a shock this must have been to all those who were listening because the Pharisees, as far as they knew, they were among the most righteous. If you don't believe it, just ask the Pharisees. Luke 18 and verse 11, we can hear what a Pharisee would say, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I pay tithes of all that I get. I fast twice a week. Look at me. I am amazing. In Matthew chapter 6, we learn about their righteousness and we find out what the Jews saw among them. We find out that they were so righteous in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 2 that they would give to the poor. And everybody could see it because they would sound a trumpet to make sure. In verse 6, uh, verse 5, we learn that they would pray and stand in the synagogues and on the street corners that they might be seen by men. We could see that righteousness in their prayers. In verse 16, we could see the gloomy face as they demonstrated to all that they were fasting. What great righteousness the scribes and Pharisees had. And we have to surpass that. But look at this very interesting verse in Matthew chapter 21 and verse 31. Remember, remember chapter 5 and verse 20, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you won't enter the kingdom. But in Matthew 21 and verse 31... 
And he talked about the two sons, the one who said he would go do the father's will but didn't, the one who said he wouldn't but did. He said, which of the two did the will of his father? In Matthew 21, 31, they said, the first, Jesus said to them, truly I say to you that the tax collectors and prostitutes will get into the kingdom of God before you. Now remember, your righteousness has to surpass that of the scribes and Pharisees to get into the kingdom. And here it says, the tax collectors and prostitutes will get there first. Now how does it happen that tax collectors and prostitutes have a righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees? I'll tell you how. Tax collectors and prostitutes will enter the kingdom of God with a surpassing righteousness when they are broken in spirit, mourning their condition, gently submitting to God, hungering and thirsting for righteousness. Because when they do that, they will receive, as Paul talks about in Philippians chapter 3, a righteousness not based on the law, but based on faith in Jesus Christ. In Philippians chapter 3, Verse 8. Let's start at verse 7. In Philippians chapter 3 and verse 7, Paul said, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ, and may be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. When the tax collectors and the prostitutes would turn to Jesus Christ, they could have a righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees because they would receive the righteousness based on faith in Jesus, not one based on themselves according to the law. And the righteousness that comes by faith in Jesus is greater than the righteousness that the Pharisees had. How amazing is that? Now, see, the Pharisees, they did as good as they possibly could on their own. But their righteousness left them spinning their wheels. We can see Paul in Romans chapter 7, beginning at verse 14, the best the Pharisees had to offer. We know that the law is spiritual. This is Romans seven fourteen. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am a flesh sold into bondage to sin. For what I'm doing, I don't understand. For I'm not practicing what I would like to do, but I'm doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For good that I want, I do not do. But I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I'm doing the very thing I do not want, I am no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then, in verse 21, the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from the body of this death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then, on the one hand, I myself, with my mind in serving the law of God, but on the other... 
With my flesh the law of sin. Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We see that wheel spinning righteousness. I'm going to rely on me and I'm going to white knuckle and I'm going to bear down and I'm going to do it. The Pharisees tried that. It didn't work. Paul tried it and it didn't work. But when we turn to Jesus Christ in faith, that is when His grace releases us and frees us so that we might pursue the righteousness for which we desire. Ephesians 2 and verse 8. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 8, Paul said, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in Him. We are this new creature. By the grace of God, we have been set free from our unrighteousness and now we are a new creature set free to walk in the good works that God had created beforehand. Titus chapter 2 and verse 14. Paul wrote in Titus chapter 2 and verse 14 that we were looking for God and Savior Christ Jesus who gave Himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed. (coughs) Excuse me. Why did He redeem us from every lawless deed? To purify for Himself a people for His own possession, zealous for good deeds. That's why He redeemed us. So that we could be zealous for good deeds. And now we're free to do that because our unrighteousness has been taken away by the blood of Jesus Christ. You see, the Pharisees, in a moment of honesty, would finally have to break down and say, I just can't do it. But where would they turn? Because according to Luke chapter 18 and verse 9, they trusted in themselves that they were righteous. But brethren, even tax collectors and prostitutes can have a greater righteousness than they did when they turned to Jesus Christ. Philippians chapter 2 and verse 12 says, Philippians 2 and verse 12, So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Only when we have come into the kingdom of heaven can we have that kind of righteousness, knowing that I can continue working out my salvation with fear and trembling because God is working with me. The Pharisees didn't have that. It's the kingdom of the poor in spirit. It's the kingdom of the harassed. It's the kingdom of the righteous. It's the kingdom of the obedient. You see, it seems that Jesus recognized that there would be people who would twist what He says. They would talk about the righteousness that comes by faith in Jesus. They would talk about the grace which supplies that righteousness and act as though that means that all we have to do is just call Jesus our Lord and everything's going to be good no matter how we live from that point on. But Jesus points out in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21, in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I'll declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. What did Jesus demonstrate? Jesus demonstrated that, yes, we receive righteousness by the grace of God. Yes, we receive that righteousness by faith in Jesus Christ. But we have received that righteousness so that we might obey. 
And we're not allowed to live however we want, but those who are in the kingdom of heaven are in the kingdom of the obedient. As we do things God's way. We don't do them our way. We don't do them man's way. We do them God's way. The only ones who enter the kingdom of heaven are those who do things God's way. Jesus said in Luke 6.46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and don't do the things I say? It's not whether or not we call Jesus Lord. It's whether or not Jesus is our Lord. And He's only our Lord when we're obeying Him. We're only manifesting the kingdom of God in our hearts and our lives when we're doing what He says. It's the kingdom of the obedient. But it's also the kingdom of the militant. Matthew chapter 6 and verse 10. Jesus taught on prayer. And he said that when we pray, we should pray, Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And sometimes we get caught up in arguing about this verse, about whether or not we should pray it because the kingdom has already come. It's already been established. And that is absolutely the truth. But as I've pointed out before, I believe this verse is not just talking about the establishment, but talking about the spread of the kingdom. We're to pray that Jesus' kingdom would come, not just that it would get established here, but that it would come throughout the entire earth that it would fill the earth just as it fills heaven. And we're praying for that, and we must be working for that. We want the kingdom of heaven to be everywhere, filling the hearts of all men and women. And so we're militant. We're marching on desire. We're in the Lord's army. And we're getting out and conquering the world. We're not just coming into our holy huddles here every once in a while talking about how great we are because we've submitted to God and how bad everybody else is because they haven't. The kingdom of heaven is the kingdom of the militant who are spreading the gospel of the kingdom so that the kingdom will be spread throughout the hearts of men. But now we keep in mind that while we're doing that, we don't do it violently. We're militant, but we're not violent. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 9 said, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. As we spread the gospel of the kingdom, as we march throughout the world taking that gospel and trying to plant it in the hearts of men, we're about making peace. We don't spread the gospel of the kingdom at the end of the sword. We don't spread the gospel of the kingdom through political mechanisms. We spread the gospel of the kingdom by spreading the ministry of reconciliation. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God who reconciled us to Himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and He has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us, we beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. 
He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. This is our militancy. Spreading this message as ambassadors as though it is God Himself making an appeal through us. Be reconciled to God. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul talks about our warfare. In verse 3 he says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God, and we are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. We're not out taking people captive. We're taking thoughts captive. We don't war according to the flesh. We reconcile according to the Spirit. And we do it intensely. We do it purposeful. And because of that, Matthew chapter 13, Matthew chapter 13 and verse 31 can apply. He presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than all other seeds, but when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Verse 33, He spoke another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it was all leaven. The kingdom spreads. Because it is the kingdom of the militant to spread the reconciliation. And finally, despite our militancy, despite our intensity and our purpose with which we spread that kingdom, taking the gospel to others, we recognize that it is always going to be the kingdom of the minority. It's going to spread in the world and numerous people are going to be a part of it. But it will always be the few in comparison to those who are in the world. Matthew chapter 7 and verse 13, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. We are never going to be the popular party. We are never going to be the majority party. And we might as well not even try. It does us no good to try to figure out the way to spread the kingdom that will have the most success, as the world tries to tell us. Because if we start having the most success, that's going to mean we're no longer teaching the kingdom of heaven. Because this kingdom is always going to be the minority. I believe there will always be another that we can find. But we just have to be prepared for the fact that as we spread this gospel of the kingdom, but there are only going to be few who want to walk this straight and narrow path. And it's not going to be just because there are only a few who want to get baptized. It's going to be because there are only a few who want to be broken in spirit, who want to mourn, who want to meekly submit, who want to hunger and thirst for righteousness who want to be merciful, who want to be pure in heart, peacemakers. There will only be a few who will be willing to put up with persecution. 
There will only be a few who want to be the light of the world, the salt of the earth, the city set on a hill. There will only be a few who want to have a righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees. Because in order to have that, I have to give up so much of me. But the few who do will enter life. This isn't the kingdom the Jews were looking for. It's not the kingdom most people today are looking for. But this is the kingdom that Jesus offers. The kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of the poor in spirit. The kingdom of the harassed. The kingdom of the righteous. The kingdom of the obedient. The kingdom of the militant. And the kingdom of the minority. This is the kingdom of heaven. There's one story in Matthew chapter 13 that ought to cause us to pause and reflect. In Matthew chapter 13, beginning at verse 24, Jesus presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore again, then the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The slaves said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, for while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up, but gather the wheat into my barn. This is one of the parables that Jesus actually explained. Just a few verses later, in verse 36, he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. And he said, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. The field is the Word. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. And the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth His angels and they will gather out of His kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. As we see the manifestation of the kingdom on the earth, what the Bible demonstrates to us that not everybody who looks like they're in the kingdom are in the kingdom. Second Peter chapter 1 and verse 10. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about His calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will be abundantly supplied to you. We must make our calling and election sure. 